Welcome everybody back to the Oklahoma Drill Podcast. I am your host, Andrew, and as always, I got my co-host Matt here with me. Unfortunately, it is a very somber Monday night here on the show. The New York Jets are eliminated from postseason contention in 2022 officially after falling 23-6 to the Seattle Seahawks in Seattle. A do-or-die game that they had to win to stay alive, knowing that their hopes were really in their own hands and needing a little bit more luck from a Buffalo team that seems like they hopefully probably would have wrapped things up at the end of the year in New England, uh, taking on the Patriots. If that were to happen and the Jets win their final two, the Jets are in the playoffs. But unfortunately, none of that matters. We didn't even get to the final week of the season to have to calculate scenarios and find out. The Jets lose in pretty sad fashion for the second week in a row when their backs are on the line, when they know all the spotlights on them, when this is, as Coach Sala likes to say, as we talk about all the time, Matt, this is when adversity hits is when your true character shows and if that's the truth, then their true character has been pretty ugly over the last month or so of the season. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have we're gonna have a lot to talk about this year. This is gonna be a very interesting offseason. There's gonna be wild speculation, hope for trades for quarterbacks than anybody else that can be found. A free agency period with not a lot of money and a draft period with not a lot of draft picks and still a lot of holes to fill and guys to re-sign. There's going to be a lot to handle. We will get into that piece by piece as this offseason goes on. But before we get any further, we got to start with this game first and foremost. Matt, I want to throw things to you. Topic in the room, elephant in the room, whatever you want to call it. This was a really rough game from Mike White. And I think there's a multitude of reasons for that. And I think we can go ahead and start there. What do you think was the biggest culprit of Mike White struggling in Seattle pretty much the whole day? Hey, yeah. Before we get into that, I just want to give a shout out to my brother-in-law, Michael, who just got engaged. Congratulations, man. I love you. Uh, I know you're uh, a, a very fierce listener to the show and you always have lots of opinions. Uh, so I won't disappoint you anymore and I'll get right into it. Uh, this game sucked uh, from beginning to end. It was absolutely horrendous. Mike, congrats. White. The game sucked. <laughs> congrats. Uh, but yeah, the game sucks. Uh, this it was disappointment from the first play with that long run to Walker. As soon as that happened, like you can kind of just feel the emotions in the room on Twitter, everywhere, just kind of shift to like, yep, this is, this isn't going to end well. And it did. It was not fun to watch. It was not pretty. Uh, really all facets of the game was just really bad uh, between. And yeah, you mentioned Mike White as the biggest culprit and he was this was not a good mike white game this was absolutely horrible he looked a lot more like zach than he did like mike white now how much is that uh due to his rib injury probably a lot um but you know what in the end it doesn't matter all right it it, we needed he was cleared to play he was cleared to play uh i was thinking throughout the week he he was talking about how the the staff were building him a, a flap jacket for a flak jacket for his, his ribs, keep him protected. Uh, and he was saying that they're working on it. But then I kept thinking, oh, so does that mean he's not practicing with it? Is he just going to put this, slap this thing on game mm-hmm. night and and just expect to be fine? It, I don't think it works like that. I, I it, So I, I feel like there's a lot of factors that went into it. But then there's other things that just didn't look right. His decision making was not up to Mike White standards. Uh so it, there's there's a lot going on more than just the ribs. Uh, it, it just looked off from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't seeing the field the way he normally f- uh, saw the field. Uh, he's m- making rush decisions and throwing it into coverages that he normally doesn't throw it into. 
the the passes they were sailing on them. Uh, that was maybe more of the ribs than than in anything else. Uh, but it, it it just didn't seem like we were watching the same Mike White that we've been really putting on a pedestal for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and then you have the the people that kind of hate Mike White or uh, Zach stands that are like, oh, you see, this is what we've been telling you about. I'm like, oh, all right. Yes, he had a bad night, and this is absolutely on Mike White. Uh, but at the same time, who else were we going to go to? Flacco? Strebler? So there really wasn't much of an option. Can we go back to Zach? No, we can't go back to Zach after what happened. Like, he's done for the year, right? Well, they need to rebuild him. We know that if we put him in, we'd probably get the same exact thing that we got with White. It, like it, 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 White just took a step back and became Zach. Not Zach. If we put Zach in, we would get anything better. So, I think we can put that to bed right now. It, what we saw was a complete mitigate, unmitigated disaster, uh, and especially on defense too. Defense really let me down. I thought that we had the tools to really stack up against them, and they just seemed to pick us apart, especially in the beginning. Uh, they got off to a hot start. And our defense really didn't have an answer. We 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 got some stops throughout the game uh, to keep it within striking distance, but even still, it was a two score game at 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 least. Uh, so they didn't do their job either. And then, of course, special teams. You got some more crap punts by man. Uh, another missed uh, field goal uh, by Zerline. Of course, that was fifty seven yards off. So I'm not going to blame him too much. Uh, and they've also let some some good returns go by too. Uh, Barrios uh, uh, as a return man has kind of let me down, letting a lot of balls drop in inside the five yard line. Uh, so it, it seemed like at all stages uh, of the team just kind of failed, and the result is we're out of the playoffs. We don't have we're not out of the playoffs. We're out of contention for the playoffs, and our season is effectively over. And that's where we're at. And quite honestly, it deserves to yeah. like it deserves to be like uh, this is uh, let's be realistic here for a second and, uh, you know, grounded as possible and objective as we can. The Jets haven't played nearly well enough over the last all practically two months, really, to deserve to get into the playoffs. They're one in six over their last seven games that that's not a playoff team. That's not anyone that should be a playoff team. They've scored four total touchdowns in their last five total games in general. That's horrendous. This is their second week in a row without scoring a touchdown at all. They scored two field goals by eight minutes in the second quarter, Matt, and that was the only points they scored the rest of the game. That That's unacceptable. And no. you can blame... You know, a multitude of reasons. Nate Herbig misses another game. They put LDT in. LDT plays just as bad as Herbig's been playing recently. You have Dwayne uh, George Fant struggling on the right side again, giving up pressure consistently to speed. You have the offensive line with a, a hot start early in the run game, getting some holes, opening some lanes, and then it seemed to completely die out. And to be fair, for Mike White, going back to the, you know, the elephant in the room, like I said before, I think the problem for him specifically is obviously, you know, there had to be some amount of uncomfortability dealing with the rib injury or the wearing the flak jacket or something else. Clearly, that was causing him some amount of discomfort, whether it was I'm not going to sit here and be a doctor and speculate or or go into, oh, it was you know this part of his rib is preventing his torque and break. I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to try to know. I am sure it was bothering him some amount. 
But like you were saying, I don't think that that is solely to blame. And that is the only problem that we can really put here. He was missing throws that he should make. By a couple of feet, a couple of inches, he had a couple of passes that were high. He had a couple of passes that were just too slightly far outside. Granted, he had a couple of balls that weren't quite perfectly on target, but probably should have been caught too. And you can blame the receivers for dropping those passes because they get paid to make catches as well. I think there was one to Uzama um, up the left sideline, if I remember correctly, Mm -hmm. that was wide open. And again, it's not a perfect ball, but he gets both of his hands on it. And and that's kind of my barometer where unless you're in a really awkward body position and you're bending all over the place, if you get both of your hands on a football as an NFL pass catcher, you should be bringing that ball down. And this was miscues and misexecution from everybody. I think the problem for Mike White is that the Jets got down by two scores basically immediately. Yeah. And you're on the road. You're in Seattle. You don't feel like you can rely on your run game quite as much now because you know you're trying to play catch up. And their first drive where they get down, first play of the game for the Seahawks, they give up a 60-yard run to Kenneth Walker. They score two plays later on a pass. Geno Smith's first pass is a touchdown. Now you're Mike White. You're down to, uh, seven points. You're going out. You're trying to take the ball. You get into a third down situation. You finally get past midfield with an offense that has been struggling to even get close to that in however many weeks. And you throw a really, really bad interception on third down when you're rolling out and the game's still early. This is your first drive of the game, but hero ball and the thought of I have to go make a play creeps into his head. And if we're going to blame Zach Wilson for that, then we need to blame Mike White, too. That's what he tried. He was playing hero ball and he throws a shot into double coverage down the sideline to Denzel Mims, who's completely and totally covered. Who's not who's completely covered Mike White would need an arm arm talent that we didn't know he had to be able to make the throw appropriately and lead Mims into the end zone pass where the safety is. Even if he does that, Quandre Diggs is a good enough safety, in my opinion, to get his eyes on the ball and track it and make a play on it anyway. It's a really bad decision. And what we would expect from Mike White in those situations is to live another down, trust his defense, know it's the first drive of the game and they're going to get more possessions, throw the ball away. And depending on where they were, they might have tried a field goal attempt. If not, they might have, you know, tried for a punt, tried to pin people short. Man's not going to be the best punter and he's putting a lot of kicks short lately. But you know what? When you're that close, all you need is a short punt. So maybe it'll work out. That's not what we got. And I really think that the legend of Mike white and him feeling like all of this is on my shoulders and I need to come back and save this team. That's really struggling without me. I think it overwhelmed him and it got in his head and it led to him being off and forcing passes that we really wouldn't expect him to force and keeping his eyes locked on things for too long and not coming off his reads. And it was a really, really rough outing overall. There was a lot of other problems as well. And I think that's fair to acknowledge, but This is why, Matt, we said for weeks and weeks on, especially after the first Chicago game, was this great, you know, great performance? Sure, it's not the best defense, but when it's not a good defense, you should go dominate them. And you did. We need to see the consistency. Let's see how long it lasts. And when we found out that he was coming back and cleared and had these next two games, we both said, this is your audition to see if you deserve a chance to stick around and maybe get an opportunity at the starting job. I don't think either of us at any point were sitting there going, Mike White is the guy, re-sign him right now. He's the future, you know, throw everything away. We found it. We said it looks good, but we have to wait and see, and this is why. So for Mike White, 
you have one more game, whether it's for the New York Jets or for anybody else, this next week in Miami to try and go show that you deserve an opportunity to be a starting quarterback somewhere. And the playoffs aren't here, but that's plenty motivation still. You're going to be a free agent at the end of this season, and this team's got to figure out what they're going to do with you. Do you want to stay? Do you want to be competing for a starting job? Do you hope to just stay the backup? Do you want to go try and land a job somewhere else if you get the opportunity? It's going to be really important. I'm really interested to see how this next game goes because this is how I feel right now, Matt, and this is where I want to I want to get your opinion as well. For someone that's supposed to be such a a master motivator, this was a deflating mm-hmm. end of the season oh, yeah. for Robert Sala's staff. Deflating. Where you have such a hot start, where you have all this momentum of not expecting to be in the thick of it. The the people saying the Jets aren't going to win a game before the bye week. Their schedule's so tough, they have no shot. You know, they made some nice moves, but they're going to win five games because everything is so tough. And you go out and you you finish at six and three before the bye. Better than anyone could have possibly imagined. And you're right in the thick of the playoff race. And instead of taking that and and turning that energy into a positive and leading that to carry you throughout the season, you lose a rookie running back and your best offensive lineman, and it completely and totally derails your season. That's a problem. It really is. Yeah. Uh, from the get-go, they just didn't look like they had anything on the line at all. They died in uh, Denver. They died. Yeah. It, it, I, I think it was that play, that interception or that got called back. Uh, because of the the Franklin Myers uh, uh, roughing the passer flag, I think that's the play that uh, I haven't seen any against the Patriots from these guys yeah. against, since uh, from this team since then. Um, yeah, even like the the de facto leaders on this defense just look like they didn't care at all. Uh, you got C.J. Mosley just kind of jogging, uh, like eh, this is a long gainer. Eh, I'm just gonna jog it out. We'll we'll maybe get him in. Get him in the in the red zone and uh, stop him for a field goal. Uh, this plays a loss, and, and that kind of energy just kind of, uh, kind of just like went through the entire team, and you can see it. And we're we feel it. We feel it too. Like we, we don't need to be there to see how much they weren't really putting it out on the field. Uh, uh, yeah, and this Saul is known for getting these guys hyped. We. One of the things that we loved about him is that, like, oh, this team never gives up. And we that said was that for weeks. We said that for weeks. We said that during the preseason with Strebler. We're like, oh, this team never gives up. Look at Strebler coming back from nowhere and getting wins for us. That's just the the blood of this team. That's the soul of this team. This never die uh, mentality. And then they died uh, about halfway through the season, and they never woke up. Uh, we went to the wake. The bells did not ring. They are dead. Uh, this is this was sad to see, and I don't know what they need to do. Uh, I I truly don't. I don't know if there's an easy answer. Um, I I, I start seeing a lot of talk about fire everybody. Uh, I'm never on board for rash decisions like that, where just that everybody calls for people's heads. Uh. But maybe somebody does need to get fired. I don't think there needs to be wholesale changes. Uh, but I feel like something needs to change. I don't know how much of this game I really put on the floor. Uh, because there were guys getting open. The balls were hitting people in the hands. Uh, yep. So it's not like 
the the plays were bad. Uh, but yet again, it just didn't feel like there was any flow. There wasn't any vision. Uh, there wasn't any creativity. Uh, and that's kind of been what Fleur Lafleur has been all year. It's just kind of been throwing things out and seeing what sticks. And if we score, we score. Uh, and it was kind of like that last night and we didn't score and we haven't scored in a long time. We've just been settling for field goals for weeks. Uh, and that kind of play is just not going to cut it, especially when you have playoffs on the line. Um, I, I don't know. How how much do you put it on LeFleur? Yeah, um, I'm going to start. I'm going to make kind of a weird analogy for the season overall, and then I'm going to relate it back to Michael Floor, and it'll all tie things up and lead us into where do we go from here with this staff? Because we could sit here and argue and speculate all day over who to bring in, who to trade for, all of that. And I'm sure we will at some point after the season gets over. But first and foremost, you got to reflect at the end of the year on your own roster, on your own team. When you're not in the postseason, you got to be introspective before you can look outside of your own building. And you got to really see what changes may need to be made internally and who you may have to replace or who you may have to improve from. So I'm, I think back to, I believe it was after the first Bills game when the Jets beat Buffalo and Robert Sala made an analogy talking about his opponents where exactly what you were saying, Matt, of this team never quit. We always lauded them for their ability to fight that coach Sala preaches, you know, that's reaching to that 60% all gas, no break. We're going to be the more explosive, more tougher team. And when it's the end of the game and it's crunch time, we're going to be the ones hitting you in the mouth, not the other way around. And the analogy that he made was, Eventually, you keep dragging people out to deep water and you'll find out they can't swim. And for the Jets in particular, they got their floaties popped and they drowned themselves. Because you had Brees Hall that made the offense go a lot better than it probably should have. You had Elijah Vera Tucker that was making an offensive line look a lot better than it probably should have. And you had a quarterback in Zach Wilson that was being carried by his defense being able to be stifling and at the time generate turnovers and his offense being able to run the football with their, with his rookie running back and be able to scheme up play action passes and easy reads for him to execute. And all he has to do is read one guy and make a throw. Once that's gone, what do you have left and how do you stay afloat? And this is where I'm relating it back to Michael floor. That's your job as an offensive coordinator to go find the life jackets for everybody. That's your job as the offensive coordinator to go find ways to dig yourself out of those holes. When things get tough, is it up to you know your backup players and everybody else on your 53-man roster to step up? Absolutely. The players have to execute, and there's 100% a part to that. They are not without blame. But it is a coach's job to make the game as easy as possible for the players and put them in the best positions possible to be successful. And we really saw Michael Floor struggle with that when he had to be the one helping his players and not the other way around. I think back to the Jacksonville Jaguars game where I can't tell you how many times, Matt, we saw Trevor Lawrence get his receivers into a bunch set and just throw a quick little bubble screen where the receiver would catch the ball, have two blockers out in front of him, and it would be seven yards on first down. Here you go. Second and three positive possession you can take a shot if you want to you're likely to pick up a first down you don't get it third and short you can work from there if you want to just pick up the first down not try and take a shot and keep chains moving that works too we don't see anything like that from michael floor we don't there's no easy answers to help out an offense it's we're going to run our scheme because that's what we do when our scheme works and you try and run the exact same offense when you have ldt 
starting at right guard and you have Zonovan Knight in the backfield as opposed to Brees Hall and Elijah Vera Tucker. And you try and do the same sort of passing game with Mike White under center that you had with Zach Wilson. And Mike White's able to execute it a little more effectively, but I don't think Mike White has proven at all to be as effective as a downfield thrower where you're stretching a defense vertically and threatening them with an opportunity on a deep shot. I just don't think we've seen it from him. That really hasn't been his game. His yards per attempt has been low in pretty much every start he's had. You, as Michael Flores, the offensive coordinator of this team, have to be more creative and have to be more willing to go outside of yourself and even if it's completely and totally shameless, steal from someone else. The NFL is a thievery league, especially offensively. You see people copy plays all the other time. And the good offensive coordinators have zero shame about it. When they see something that's good that works and they think it could work for them, they'll throw it in their playbook whatsoever and they don't give a damn who came up with it because if it works for them, it works for them. They don't have the ego of this is our scheme. This is how I put things together. This is how I want things to be done. And it's going to work because I think it's going to work. We just see have seen no pivot from the floor. And I know it's not easy to completely flip your offense overnight. But if other teams in the NFL on a week to week basis can be seeing things on film from other clubs and installing them in a week and adding them in in crucial situations to help them win football games. There's no reason the Jets shouldn't be doing that, too. And they haven't done it for two years. It's a problem. It's a big problem to me. Yeah. How how quickly did the Philly special make it into every single playbook in the NFL? How quickly did the tight ends going to take the quarterback sneak, make it into every single playbook in the NFL this year? It's all, it's all at the speed of light, uh, how these things transfer. And the fact that it hasn't with LeFleur is a huge red flag. Uh, I, when looking at LeFleur, I have to look at it from two different point of views. One from the point of view of, what has he had to deal with and with injuries and everything that's kind of fallen apart. Uh, and he's had to deal with a lot. That's a, a fair lot. point. And I try to relate that with Zach, with Zach, when the pocket was clean and he had no pressure, he had uh, a, a stat line that was, was at somewhat of a satisfactory level as opposed to when he was pressured. And it's kind of like that for LaFleur as well. When everything's going right, he's got his weapons and everything's uh, everything's everybody's healthy and everything's flowing. He's able to put together game plans uh, that have some kind of flow to them. And and we have an offense that could resemble something of an offense that can get it done in the NFL. Uh, But when things are down and he's got injuries, uh, he doesn't really have an answer. He doesn't know how to maneuver his way into making the players that he does have uh, into a formidable force uh, using just his creativity and what he knows about his team. And the fact that he hasn't is a huge red flag. I truly don't believe he was ready for this role right away. I would have hoped that maybe uh, Sala uh, kind of eased him in with maybe the same role he had in in San Francisco, which was what the passing game coordinator, uh, and maybe had yep. a run game coordinator to, to go with him. Uh, that's kind of where I maybe lean towards next year as well. Uh, if he doesn't want to outright fire him, uh, but I don't. Maybe I don't even see that happening. I, I don't know. We'll get to that. But it, I, 
I just don't think he was ready. And it's showing time and time at, uh, on the field. And it, it's just hard because this is his, uh, Salah's best friend's brother. Like, yeah, they, they have that saying, don't get in the business with family and friends uh, or uh-huh. don't, uh, don't borrow money from family and friends. Uh, because now you get the sticky situation where you have a guy who probably wasn't ready for, and he's learning on the job, but now things aren't where we want them to be. They aren't where we need them to be. And everybody's on the hot seat. So something needs to change. And it's all on saw right now to maybe make those decisions. Yeah, no, you brought up a point there that I want to get into, because I think that's where we'll start with what happens with this team when you're looking at things introspectively, because I do not think Michael Flores is getting fired. Personally, if I was the head coach and I can't speak this saying it was the best man at my wedding's younger brother, that's the guy that I'm having to do this to. I think he's in over his head and I think he needs to needs to go. And I think you need to find a new offense coordinator that's a veteran in the league to run things. That said, the point you made about Matt, about adding another voice in the room to take some of the load off, I think is a thousand percent what needs to happen in reality, because Michael Floor. Let's go back a few years and remember what he came from. He came from San Francisco, where Kyle Shanahan is widely regarded as one of the best offensive minds in the sport, and everybody in the world knows it. And even he had two guys on his staff to help him plan an offense. He had Michael Flores, his passing game coordinator. He had Mike McDaniel as his run game coordinator. He had John Benton as his offensive line coach that can also help. Now the Jets are viewing it as they have Benton as the run game coordinator, and they had Greg Knapp rest in peace before the season in 2021 to be the quarterback guru specialist quarterback coach. Now, when it comes to the passing game, you pretty much only have Michael Floor. Rod Calabrese has had no like play calling experience in the league or close to it. So how much is he really going to help you game plan and design an offense and come up with your scheme? And you have Benton who used to just be an offensive line coach and just get to focus on coaching that, now also doing some amount of run game scheming. I think they really need to bring in somebody, and I don't know how you're going to be able to do this without outright giving them the offensive coordinator job, but I really think you need to bring somebody in as a senior offensive assistant that's going to work with LaFleur, be there as a voice of guidance, be there to explain, you know, things he may not understand or add other ideas because I just think there's so much on his shoulders right now and he's not sure how to figure it out. And now things are just tumbling and he doesn't know how to get out of it. And he's just, you're just digging a pit deeper for yourself. And it's really striking to me that a guy as smart and as talented as Kyle Shanahan has a, a, a is not so full of himself and is humiliable, humiliable, whatever the word (laughs) is enough to have other guys in the room to help him and to know that he can't just handle everything himself while also being the head coach coaching the other team. Now, Michael floor isn't a head coach himself, but it's still a role that he hadn't had in the NFL before that was new for him. And I really think it would do this team a lot of good. I think the first thing they have to do is not make any sort of subtraction from the staff, but make an addition, find somebody to bring in. If no one takes Frank Reich as an offensive coordinator and somehow he's looking for a job, I think he's the ideal voice to bring in. Yeah, I completely agree. 
Um, I, I just I, when I look at the relationship between Sala and the Fleur, it's like a brotherly relationship, and I feel like anything other than bringing back Lafleur in the same role that he has right now would kind of be a slap in the face to the Lafleur. Uh, and I don't know how that would go. It, like, I, 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 I truly, I, I don't know enough about their relationship. I, I, I can speculate but, and say that they're like brothers. And, but it, it, at the same time, it's, I, I, Everything that I've heard from uh, from Sala after the fact is like, oh, it, it makes it sound like nothing is going to change. It sounds like he's re- relating it to his own situation uh, in San Francisco after a bad year. And people were talking about him getting fired and how they stuck with him. And then everything kind of fell into place. Uh, and it sounds like he's going to be doing that with LaFleur as well, where he's going to get another chance. Uh, and uh, we'll see what happens. Now, here's the thing. The staff is up to Sala, but how much say does Joe Douglas or Woody Johnson have in this? Because they're looking at this the same way the fans are. Like, hey, we need to win. We were this close to getting to the playoffs. We should have been in the playoffs, and we didn't make it again. This uh, reminiscent of the, the Fitzgerald year. Do they have, or maybe I do, they do have the power, but will they wield that power? And demanding change. I personally, I think if I know how at least this team is reported to operate, and I'm inclined to believe it because it seems like everyone is on the same page. And if there was some amount of friction, I feel like after two years, we would know. And and it doesn't seem to be that way. I don't think Joe Douglas is the type of guy that's ever going to go to Sala and say, you have to make a change to your staff. That just, that doesn't seem like the type of, of, GM that he wants to be. It doesn't seem like uh, something that he would do. That said, I think Sala values Douglas's opinion. And I think that Douglas would absolutely have the freedom to say, I think Mike needs help. I think Mike really struggled in these particular areas. And it's something that he needs to improve on. I don't think that he would ever sit there and go, you need to fire him. And I'm the GM and you report to me. And I am telling you as your boss, fire him. I'm making the decision. I think he would give his opinion, and then I think he would say, but Robert, it's your staff. At the end of the day, it's your call, and I'm never going to make a decision for you. That said, I don't think Woody's that type of person. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I think and I think if if it really was, the, the rumors of Woody Johnson not getting along with Salah, I don't buy for a second. I, I absolutely do not buy that for a second. As soon as they hired this dude, Woody Johnson was kissing the ground. He freaking walked on. And it's been like that ever since. I don't, I, I can't see that being the case whatsoever. But I also think that if Woody outright was this frustrated with LaFleur and maybe behind closed doors, things have happened to lead it that way that we don't know about. I do think that he could definitely be the type of guy to go, I think you need to make a move and I'm the owner and I'm kind of saying it. Now, would he again outright force the hand and go, you have to fire this guy right now? I'm making the decision. I don't know, because I think Robert Sala being the type of person that he is would say, OK, then shove it. I'm out of here. And, <laughs> and 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 wouldn't. And then you're your same old Jets circus. And I really don't think that the culture, the way as it is, is constructed to operate like that. There's a lot of still circus like things that end up happening with this team, but it doesn't seem like that core nucleus has that much of a problem. I think the best case scenario 
is to bring in someone with veteran experience as a play caller in the league, even if you have to go pluck them back out of the college ranks, give them a senior, you know, assistant position, you know, find some sort of role for them on this team to help collaborate with LaFleur and guide him along because I don't think he's getting fired. Like I said, exactly what you said, Matt, it's, it seems like that's exactly the case that Salah's not even remotely thinking of it as a possibility and relating it to himself when he was in San Francisco. And after two years, their defense was bad and Kyle could have fired him and, and Salah's own words made him the scapegoat and he didn't. And he evaluated the team and came back and gave him another shot. The next year they were in the Super Bowl. I'm sure that there's, you know, there's a lot of truth to that, but I also think that at least from, the the schooling from different coaches and different scenarios that we've seen and the success at places they had been before. I feel like Sala has a little more, you know, of a reputation and provenness in the league to be able to sit there and go, but I had also been in the league for 15 years before that. And I didn't get brought up with Kyle everywhere I went. I had met Kyle and was hired as his defensive coordinator, having worked with people that had worked familiar with him, but not directly for him. This is a situation where LaFleur got brought up by Shanahan everywhere until he's getting brought up by Sala, which is another guy that's probably going to string him along. So um, I, I really hope they bring in another voice because I'm, it, 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 we're watching Michael LaFleur like, drown right now. We really are. Now, do you think there's a remote possibility that maybe things just click if nothing changes and he just goes into the season as the sole offensive mind the the decision maker on the offense that things will maybe just click and he'll find his voice i i i i'll wait for your answer but i i uh, what i think is no i don't see it i if i've seen some some semblance of it throughout the season where he was able to change even just a little bit to to fit his players and to fit what he had uh then maybe but the fact that we haven't seen it really at all is troubling and leads me to believe that without something dramatic happening i it just won't change no i'm in complete agreement with you and i also think the other point to that if you're relating it directly to salas going into salas third year as a coordinator versus lafleur's you know who sala got um, and this is where speculation can come into it, but this is one thing we know for sure. You know who Sala got on his team going into 2019 that kind of really, really helped him make things a little bit easier? Nick Bosa. You know who really, really started to turn things on in the 2019 season and emerged themselves as one of the better players of their position in the league? Fred Warner. So are you going to get the offensive version of Fred Warner and Nick Bosa for Michael Floor? Are, are you going to have guys that can come in and be that impactful to make an improvement? And I'm not trying to take away anything, you know, any credit from anything else Sala did as a coordinator because he did have a very good season and the defense was very good. But would that defense be as good as it was to get all the way to the Super Bowl without the play of Nick Bosa and Fred Warner? I don't think so. And I don't think it's 100% give Robert Sala all the credit in the world for this defense and don't give any of these players any credit whatsoever. With the way things are constructed right now for the Jets offense, where they have no clear answer at quarterback whatsoever and their offensive line situation is murky at best, do you think that LaFleur is going to succeed? I sure don't. And I don't think any 
rookie because that's he's still a rookie in my eyes this is still his first job as an offensive coordinator he's still only in his second year as a play caller he's not even finished with it yet you know you're still a young pup when it comes to nfl experience for a young pup offensive coordinator that is a tough situation to overcome i don't know anybody that would succeed like that yeah it's it's really hard and just to go back to what i said about how when things are are right things look better on offense uh, when when people are healthy when our stars are are playing like stars uh things uh definitely looked a lot different uh and that could happen we still have a lot of star power on the offense we have our first 1000 yard receiver in wilson we've got hall uh coming back uh hopefully he still leads the team in rushing by the way still really that's that's something uh so if, if these guys can come back and be the same stars it will help a lot i don't think it's a cure all for for sure because no without an offensive line or quarterback those guys aren't going to be they they can do their best and they'll will be clinging on to life because of them but we won't have an offense that can consistently thrive uh so yeah there's just so much uncertainty and we need more we just need a lot more and at places that are premium places on the offensive line and quarterback so yeah it's it's really hard to see unless those things kind of settle down into a place of stability then i don't see any stability with him uh but then again maybe you can say that about a lot of coordinators if if they don't have a quarterback or an offensive line, uh, how many offensive coordinators do you think can really overcome that? Right. And and this is the point that I think we should make, Matt. And I think that's very, very astute of you to bring up. Sometimes it's not always about the results. It's about the process. And for me, the process is broken just as much as the results for Michael Floor. If we were seeing you're trying to, you know, add in new wrinkles and steal plays from other teams. And for God's sake, Tariq Woolen and the, you know, the slot safety, you're nine yards off, just motion to a bunch like the Jaguars did and pick up seven yards on first down. Why? Because it's easy. If we were seeing more things like that out of Michael Floor and it just wasn't working as well because the players on the field weren't executing in the right way, it's a completely different story. It's a completely and totally different story. But we are seeing the same play calls against the same uh, against different teams every week, regardless of their opponent, regardless of scheme. They're going to run the same offense every single time. We see very little creativity week to week. We see very little things stolen from other places. We see very little game planning directly to the opponent. They've been they were 20th in the NFL in um, first quarter points in 2021. They're 29th this year. That's Game scripting. Those are supposed to be the best plays of your offense are the first 15 plays that are scripted against what other whatever defense you're going against that week. And that's when the Jets have been consistently at their worst under Michael Floor. That to me says so much more than just looking at the results and going they scored three points followed by six points in back to back weeks. That matters, too. But when you dive in deeper, would many coordinators succeed without an offensive line and a quarterback? No. But if we were seeing LaFleur trying to give his guys the best possible shot in the best way he can and his guys letting him down, I would feel a hell of a lot differently than I do right now. I completely agree. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's a very difficult to, uh, situation to really diagnose down to the T. Like, this is the problem. 
this needs to be fixed because right there's this. a lot of problems there's a lot of problems it's coming from every direction and who knows if if some things broke one way would things be a lot different and we don't know we can't say for sure uh but one thing we can say for sure is what we've seen on the field is an unbridled disaster and we can't accept that something needs to change and the the leadership of this team needs to be able and willing to do that. No, you can't just hope and will and and outwork and outstrain your way to an NFL championship. That that's just that's just not possible. The only way you can do that is if you're the Seattle Seahawks and you have a Hall of Famer at every level of your defense and at the time what looked like a Hall of Fame quarterback, which I think before this year, everyone in the world would have said Russell Wilson was a Hall of Fame quarterback and he's kind of just going out on his own legacy in bad terms right now. But look at the entire body of work. I don't think anyone would question Russell Wilson as a great player. You have to have a team like that to where you can just outwork and, you know, out out aggressive and out we'll have more in the tank at the end of the year. And we're just going to be tougher and meaner and, and strain harder for the entire game. You need a superstar roster to do that. And we've said that for a while and the jets are trying to add to it. And they've done a good job this season in the list, this last draft class of doing that for sure, but it takes the entire team. And it, you, it's a really, really tough situation going forward when there is so much that needs to be changed, but you're right. The first thing to do is to be, honest with yourself and be interested introspective and look yourself in the mirror and go, this wasn't good enough and we got to get better. I hope Sala is the type of guy to do that. I, I really hope that the way things closed out this year are going to, you know, eat at him for the rest of the off season as messed up as that might be to say, because there's got to be some urgency going into 2023. You can't have a team that's the best talent wise. It's been in probably the last decade and not have any ability to get a winning record in three years. That's not good enough. It's not. And I went into the season with uh, medium expectations. I wanted two things. I wanted to know what the future looks like for Zach. I wanted to have some solid conclusion to that. And I wanted improvement in the six to eight win realm. And I got both of those things. And yet I'm still incredibly disappointed. <laughs> and yeah. that's it's it's a weird feeling. It's like I got what I want and I'm not happy. <laughs> and it's it's just it, it's it's sad. And you know why that is, Matt? And I've been thinking about that a lot the last few days because I've kind of felt the same way. Because in all of our predictions, we thought they were going to be bad to start and then close out strong. And it's the opposite. Yeah. They started fast and then they fizzled out to end the year and really kind of died. And that just leaves such more of a, a pain taste in your mouth because you weren't expecting them to be good. So then when they're unexpectedly six and three, it's, oh, my God, how'd we get here? We're in the thick of it. We could really make a run. And then the letdown following that is so much different than starting slow, being out of it, not even thinking and then climbing your way back out and making improvement. You know, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. It really is. And they did not finish. That's for damn sure. No, they absolutely didn't. I think we're ready to get into the draft. As always, we are going to be looking ahead to this big draft class. This is going to be a huge, huge offseason where we've said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it until we get to the draft itself. This is going to be a very important year for the Jets specifically because they don't have the boatload of draft picks that they normally have had for the last multitude of years. They only have five as of right now. 
And they're going to have to make those five count as most as they possibly can. Every pick is that much more important. So we're going to keep it right here, moving along with these prospects. We have another offensive tackle and another center to get into. Matt, finally, after my blunder last week of trying to jump to this guy too early, (laughs) please tell us about the center from Michigan, because if you don't, I'm going to have an aneurysm waiting to talk about this guy. (laughs) Yes, uh, I'm going to I've been practicing this name all day. It's Olisegun Oluwitimi. There we go. Uh, it's a mouthful, uh, and he's a handful for for defenders. He sure is. He, I, last week, I talked about Ricky Stromberg, who I, I've kind of been comparing all these guys to Connor McGovern, uh, who I think has the movement skills that we need and desire, but he does not have the power uh, or the sand in his pants to really hold up uh, in, in the power game. Uh, so I went with Ricky Stromberg last week, who I think has uh, decent movement skills and is stronger. Uh, he's kind of the well-rounded option. And then this week, Olu Timmy, uh, I think has the monster strength that we really need and crave on this offensive line. Uh, we, for the last couple of years, you've just been saying we need dogs on this team. and Olu- Olawatimi uh, really fits that that bill. He is and a he's dog. a Wolverine. Yes, he's a Wolverine for sure. Yeah, uh, he he gets it done. He has enough movement skills to pass in our offense, uh, and most of all, he has uh, that like brute strength that just moves people at will. He can get uh, to reach blocks. He can turn defenders at whim. He opens up holes like nobody I've seen in, in a while at at, uh, at center. He's got what it takes. Uh, I I have him in the early second round. Uh, I, I would love it if if uh, if the Joe Douglas decides to go the route of uh, a rookie center. Uh, I'm not sure if he would. I feel like maybe he wants. Uh, a little bit more experience, uh, especially in how we've been talking about the next year being a, such a pivotal year for this staff uh, and their future. And I don't know if he would be willing to put all that in the hands of a rookie center. But if we were to, uh, Olu would definitely be my choice. Uh, he's definitely uh, got that ability to really bring uh, that dog mentality that brute strength that ability to really bring the our run game out because our run game has really sputtered this year uh there's zero push on this offensive line if we get into a short yard situation i i already know it's it's not going to end well uh it it it's embarrassing con- considering where this the history of this offensive line has been uh, where it used to be a great strength. It's a great weakness right now. Uh, so a guy like Olu uh, would really bring uh, character and, uh, and and a mentality that we've kind of been desiring since we've lost Mangold and Brickishaw. Uh, so, yeah, he's one of my top guys. Uh, I would not hesitate to, to take him in the, uh, in the second round if we, if we got that chance. No, I, I would be running that card in. No, absolutely. I would be running that card in. Um, I'm going to try and keep this compact because I really could talk about this guy all night. I love him that much. I'm 
really trying to hold out, but this guy is like entering. I love him as much as I love Jermaine territory where uh, he's not going to get as high of an overall grade, probably just purely off athletic talent. But if he tests like an above average athlete, he's going to get a first round grade for me. It's going to be a mid to late first round grade, but it's going to be a first round grade at the very worst. Like you said, he's early second right now. And the thing that I love about him more than anything, anything else is on top of just the tape, which is dominance, just absolute dominance. It does not matter who he's playing. The Big Ten has some of the bigger, stronger defensive linemen you're going to see in college football, and he is throwing them into the dirt with shocking frequency. He is so experienced and so smart and so versatile in what he's capable of that I'm struggling to find any weaknesses other than he isn't the best athlete. And if that's the only problem, then that's a guy that I am pretty confident in is going to have a really high floor because he knows how to maximize the most out of what he's done. And he's incredibly experienced. He's played four straight years starting at center the previous three seasons at the University of Virginia. And I believe he's made like 42 straight starts. You go this past season for the Michigan Wolverines. He sweeps the college award scene. Wins the Remington Trophy, which is given to the best center in college football, wins or the Remington Award, wins the Outland Trophy, which is given to the best interior lineman, guard, center, regardless in college football. He's a first team All American. He leads the way for Michigan rushing attack that was devastating people all year. Blake Corum had 50, uh, 1,463 yards at 5.9 yards a carry. And if you go back and watch that tape, Matt, we joke about this all the time. How many people are going to watch Blake Corum run rough shot through the Big Ten this season? on tape and miss the guy in the center of the Michigan Wolverine, uh, Wolverines offensive line that's opening all the lanes for him to run through. That's Oluwatimi. This dude is awesome. Absolutely, absolutely awesome. The strength in his hands, the strength in his legs, his ability to grip, even when he doesn't get the best contact on a guy initially, his ability to reset and torque and just throw them to the ground anyway. When it's short yardage and you need someone to move the line of scrimmage, it's automatic. And then he gets out in space, Michigan with their power offense. Harbaugh's no stranger to pull an offensive lineman around. And he gets up to linebackers and seals them with reach blocks that look like something you would expect from Connor McGovern. And you're going, this guy is plenty agile and plenty quick enough to get out on the move to where he's not a lumbering, you know, like a, a 380 pound nose tackle that's never going to be mobile. He can get out in space when he needs to. He can get up field and seal on linebackers. He can get out to the edges of polar. I've seen him execute some reach blocks on the interior, and he does a solid job of that, too. But the nastiness and the aggression, the power, the strength, it's some of the best I've ever seen at center to be completely and totally honest. And I'm going back in my mind of, of all the offensive linemen I, I've scouted in my day. And I swear this guy's in the top five of just outright pancakes per game, where it's how many times did he put his man in the dirt and completely take them out of the play? Does it more frequently than any other offensive lineman I have seen in scouting this season, period, Tackle, guard, center, regardless, there has not been somebody I have watched yet that has routinely and more frequently thrown people into the ground and and taken them out of the play more than Oluwatimi. And I, that's basically the only position I've scouted so far has been offensive line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm over the moon with this guy. Uh, uh, there's his technique is awesome. 
his his power is is honestly honestly just jaw dropping at times he's super experienced he knows how to adjust and counter he can recover when he's beaten he's never giving up on a play you know there is so much to like with this this guy i'm i'm over the moon i really think he's i think he is going to be a starting nfl center for as long as he wants to be and the jets need at the very least an above average starter i think this guy can be that if he's there in the second round for the Jets, I, I think it's a absolute home run. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, one, one thing you said is that he has a high floor. And when I think of uh, Joe Douglas, even if he wants experience, I think that's it's going to be hard. Either way, you're going to be plugging somebody. If you're in worried to... about a rookie center, this is one of the most experienced rookie centers you're going to find. Exactly. He's He's going to be... Okay. All right. I'm not worried about him uh, really floundering and not being able to find his footing. Uh, and there's not many prospects that you can really just look at and just be like, yeah, this guy's going to figure it out and figure it out real yeah. quick. Yeah. Uh, and if you think of a line with AVT back with him, with maybe a healthy Becton, and maybe the next guy we're going to be talking about, it becomes a lot more of a formidable line that a guy like Hall or really anybody can run behind and also just give stability to a quarterback, whoever that quarterback might be. Yeah, no, I, I completely and totally agree. I'm, uh, this is the, there's still a lot of guys to get through. It's a big draft class as it is every year. And, you know, I'm really only through tackles, guards and centers so far with this class, but out of the handful of guys that I have watched uh, this so far this year, Oluwatimi is my favorite prospect. That's not, top grade that's not forever first overall but i talk all the time about the raven scouting department and i know this because it relates to the jets and it's where joe douglas really was taught how to be a scout they have a program that they call their red star program which is every scout has a guy that they put their name next to and put the red star down next to their name on the draft board and says this is one of my favorites this is a guy i really believe in that i'm willing to attach my name to it's not always meant to be for the top overall prospects it's supposed to be for the guys that maybe aren't as well known but guys their scouts feel really confident on and it's how they've acquired some of their better players throughout the years an organization a ravens team that's been a, a playoff caliber team for a very very long time this guy's my top candidate for my red star so far this year. I love him. I do too. I also love the next guy you're going to talk about. Yeah, let's get into that offensive tackle. Once again, uh, I would say probably the Jets top need without a doubt so far looking ahead to this season. We're hopeful that Becton can come back and have some amount of health. We're hoping that Max Mitchell can get his blood clot issue sorted out. That's you know far more important for his life than coming back to play. But if he is healthy enough to play, we're hoping he can come back and be a factor. But Dwayne Brown's going to be 38. George Fant has been horrendous since returning from injury. And there really isn't much else there to have any sort of certainty in terms of starting offensive tackles. We talked about Paris Johnson last week. I think, Matt, we both agree that he's the top guy in the class for us so far. Um, this guy, at least for me, that we're going to talk about next is currently my offensive tackle, too. I don't know where you have him ranked. I imagine it's within your top five, though. Uh, yeah, I have him right now as my number three, but I, I, I have there's definitely a lot of room to move him up to number two. I, I can see right. that happening very easily. Right. Still very early in the process, not final rankings by any stretch. But the uh, the guy we're talking about here is Darnell Wright from Tennessee, the right tackle. Darnell Wright 
is another guy like Oluwatimi before. Uh, you know, we talked about two guys last week that I think were a little more agile, fleet of foot, get out in space guys in Stromberg and Paris Johnson. Not that they can't move the guys off the line of scrimmage, especially Johnson. But I think the two guys we're talking about this week are the real meat grinders on the inside that move people off the ball. Darnell Wright, holy cow. When he gets his hands inside and he drives with his legs, people move wherever he wants them to move. It does not matter whether you're a 6'5", 280-pound defensive end at Alabama or you know if you're a defensive tackle on the interior on a double team, you're getting washed out of the play. That's what it is. Then you go and you watch the Alabama game, a game that I was actually at in person um, in Knoxville for that incredible performance. I'm over the moon that I was able to see that live. And Darnell Wright goes against the best pass rusher in, in college football, pretty much, period, and Will Anderson, and shuts him down for the entire game. Matches him up the arc, keeps up with his speed, keeps up with his counter moves, and, and basically neutralizes him for the entire contest. Leads Tennessee, you know, not by himself, but does what he has to do to go, lead Tennessee to a win over, at the time, you know, a, a huge opponent in Alabama, set themselves up for the rest of the season. His ability to be a big man that plays like a big man and mauls people like a big man and also have the feet to keep up in pass protection is so big for me in my rankings. I don't ever want guys that have an obvious counter that have an obvious weakness that can just be exploited. And there's nothing they can do about it because athletically they don't have an option. So if you're a player that's really agile and really fleet of foot and you can move really well, but your anchor and your core strength and power just isn't there, then guys are going to run through you every time. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. Conversely, if you're really big and really strong and powerful and you got some long arms, but your foot speed is terrible and you can't keep up to the corner, then guys are going to just run around you every time. There's nothing you're ever going to be able to do about it. Darnell Wright doesn't have any of those problems. He's got plenty of length. He's got plenty of strength. He's got plenty of anchor. He's got plenty of quickness. He can mirror on the edge and pass protection. And the one thing with him that really sticks out with me, Matt, I haven't heard anyone mention this. Of the guys I've watched so far at offensive tackle, he might be the one that's had the most true pass sets. Where Tennessee's a downfield passing offense, they throw deep a ton. They were chucking the ball all over the yard this year with Hendon, Cook, uh, Hendon Hooker and Josh Heupel's offense. And there's a ton of reps where he's singled up with an edge rusher and he's got to hold up kicking to the edge and pass protection for a long time, waiting for routes to develop downfield. There's a he's only a one year starter, but I think your people are going to underrate his experience because they're not going to realize that he has so much experience in pass protection just this season that I really think that it gives him a little bit of a slight advantage to a guy that we haven't talked about yet, like a Broderick Jones, where yes, George is going to throw the ball. They have Stetson Bennett. You know, it's not like they're never going to pass and it's not like Broderick Jones never pass sets, but they are more of a run first team. And they're going to be looking to, you know, we're going to run the reverse. We're going to run power. We're going to get in our three tight end sets and we're going to be down blocking. And, and that's going to be the core of our offense. That's what we're going to try and do more than anything else. It's also a, a different situation like Ohio State where there's another downfield passing offense, but it's a lot of RPO concepts where a lot of the times they're passing plays, but the offensive line is more run blocking than they are pass blocking. Darnell Wright just has a ton of plays where he is just on an island in pass protection against an edge defender, and he completely and totally shuts him down. His ability to lock out with length is really, really good. Like I was saying, his ability to mirror the corner with foot speed is really, really good. And he can still drive people off the ball, no problem. I'm I'm a big fan of his. I really like the overall package with him. I think he's an underrated athlete. I think he's quicker and more explosive than people maybe get credit for. And I really think he's a guy that's being overlooked in this tackle class overall. I'm 
I'm a big, big fan. And if specifically the Jets, if Becton comes back healthy and they think, okay, we're going to let you go back and be left tackle again, and we're going to put our eggs in that basket, and they're looking for a right tackle, specifically a right tackle, then I think Darnell Wright might be the perfect guy for the job. Yeah. He also has some experience at left tackle. So I I don't see uh, an issue where if they do want to move him to left, uh, that, that probably won't be a problem. Or if injuries stack up and we need to maneuver some people around, uh, I could definitely see him making that that move uh and yeah just to reiterate something you said about his mirroring ability that is what jumped out the most uh when watching uh that alabama game uh every time anderson tried anything he was there he he was still there he was square uh to the defender he didn't give up an inch uh and not oversetting not undersetting just just keeping right up with him and 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 mirroring is the easiest word to to use for it yeah, uh, he he just was a, a force that Anderson could not overcome that game. Uh, and you see it a lot more through throughout that year, uh, throughout this year. Uh, my only complaint is that this year is probably the only year where we've seen him this dominant, uh, this consistent, uh, and this uh, efficient. Uh, the last couple of years, he's been averaging close to five penalties a, a, a a, a a game or a year, uh, uh, you know, five penalties a year. Uh, he was heavily penalized last year. I think he had ten. Uh, and uh, the the pressures uh, were also a little bit more abundant leading up to this year. But this year it just seemed to all click. He had a ninety nine point one pass uh, blocking efficiency this year, the highest uh, that I've seen out of most of the tackles I've seen uh, this year so far. Uh, and his uh, run blocking has also improved a great deal. So is it all a culmination to this point, or is it a flash in the pan? That's probably the only thing I'm getting hung up on, uh, but I feel like I can get over that <laughs> because, you know, yeah. uh, the, the amount of talent that this guy has and what I was able to see on on in the tape uh, just screams uh, a top pick, whether it's uh, the th- number three tackle or the number two. Um, yeah it doesn't really matter that much because he's going to be good. He's going to be a force and he's a force that I would like on our line. Yeah. There's a trait I look for, and this goes for offensive and defensive linemen, but uh, the two guys that we highlighted today and Olu with Timmy and Darnell, Wright, I really think fit this really well, which is why I'm bringing it up. I look for guys that even when they don't win, they aren't losing and like their worst plays are stalemates. To where if they're not getting pressure, if it's a run play and you're an offensive tackle and you're not getting a, you know, a perfect drive off the ball and you're walking the defensive end four yards upfield and opening a lane, you know, you're not going to do that every single play. No player does. But at worst, are you not getting pushed back and giving penetration and getting shed for a tackle for loss? Are you just keeping your guy and and you're at the line of scrimmage and you're not giving any ground, but you're not necessarily getting any ground? If those are your worst plays, if your worst plays are stalemates, that stands out a ton to me. I don't like guys that get badly beat often. I don't like guys that that get if you're a defensive end, for instance, where if you have super bright flashes and when you do everything right, it looks really good. And then three out of the five next other plays, you're getting washed down the line of scrimmage four yards out of the play or you're having some random tackle just walk you up the line like it's nothing. That's going to be a negative for me. I want guys with more consistency than that. And I want guys that just outright don't lose. Although with Timmy and Darnell Wright, their worst plays are stalemates. 
where for Oluwatimi, I don't think I have ever seen him get outright walked back in pass protection or blown off the ball and and driven back the line of scrimmage. Where I don't know if you remember this play from a few years ago, Matt. You remember when Javon Kinlaw was coming out? I do, yes. You remember the Georgia game when he picked up Georgia's right guard and with one arm <laughs> walked him so far back? I think I'm trying to think the running back at the time. Um, I think it was, oh God, who's the guy in Oakland now that just got drafted? Uh, Zamir White. Zamir White, yes. Yeah, um, yeah Zeus White. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Zamir White gets tackled with the Georgia guard yeah. by Javon Kinlaw. <laughs> where it, it, he did not touch Zamir White. J- Javon Kinlaw did not. He just picked up Georgia's right guard, got on his chest with his left arm, and threw him into Zamir White in the backfield for a tackle for loss. You don't ever see that happen to Oluwatimi or Darnell Wright. not. Ever. Ever. Like, it's not like a, oh, it, you know, it happened once or twice. I can't find a rep of it happening. I, I don't see one in the games that I have watched. That's a huge sticking point for me. I really, really like both of these guys, regardless of how it shakes out, because I'm sure we'll be starting to get into some other positions soon where it won't just be offensive linemen. Looking at this class overall, if you are the New York Jets and you do not walk out of the first two rounds with one of a starting offensive tackle or one of a starting guard or center, this is a colossal failure. There's too many good guys in this class. There is too many talented players. This is a deep O-line class. The tackle class that we've seen, Matt, there's like four guys that I'm going to have with solid straight first round grades, if no lower than mid first round. There's probably two or three of them that I'm going to have with high seconds to late first round grades. And there's probably another two or three guys that are going to be mid round picks. That's that's like 10 tackles that you could choose from in the first three rounds. If you don't get one of these guys, it's a failure by Joe Douglas, in my opinion. It really is. And we, we can say this until we're blue in the face. If we, if we don't have a quarterback, or we don't have offensive line, or doesn't matter what we have in, in, in terms of firepower. So this, I feel like, is where we need to focus right now, especially at tackles, uh, yes. where we really have nothing certain for next year. Every single person that we do have on our roster is a question mark to the nth degree. Uh, so this is where we need to focus a lot of of our firepower at with our draft capital and Douglas, Douglas has kind of made it a priority to fix this offensive line uh, from the moment he so he said the team. Uh, and yes I get it you can't uh, you can't really uh, I- I anticipate injuries and he's been hit with a lot of them uh, but then you got moves like Lakin or McGovern or Herbert who none of them or Becton who have just never really panned out. Uh, And so something needs to happen uh, at this position, but really the entire unit uh, to really uh, change. And if it's wholesale change, I don't think it's going to be whole wholesale change, but uh, maybe uh, I I can see three to about three new starters next year. That's really the hope. I think you got to get at least two. And I think you should be aiming for more than that. But if you don't get at least two, then then you failed the portion of the process of the offseason, which is step one, like we've talked about all episode. Look back at your own team, be introspective, look in the mirror and be honest to yourself about what you need to improve. If you don't get at least two new starting offensive offensive linemen in this offseason, then you didn't do a good enough job of that. No, because what we have right now is not getting the job done. 
No, it absolutely is not getting the job done at all. I think that does it for this week. We got one more game to review next week at Miami before the season is officially over, and we don't have to worry anymore about whether it will continue or whether or not we can look ahead straight towards the offseason. Senior Bowl is going to be here before you know it. Hope everyone listening had themselves a happy new year. Congratulations to Matt's brother-in-law on the engagement. Very happy to hear that as well. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, make sure you're following the show at OKD Podcast, and you can find me at Andrew Golden underscore 17. Matt, let's wrap this one up. Hey, I'm Matt. You can find me at Zazzy Jets. Thank you guys one more time for tuning in. We will be back next week to review the final game of the 2022 season, look ahead to the draft a little bit more, and wrap things up on this Jets story for the year. Thank you guys. We'll be back. Bye-bye.